Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Uh, We talk a lot about students and their application process because that's what we're all about and also how they're going to pay for it, pay for college. Um, But I did want to give a special shout out to all the teachers um, on the anniversary of my mom's passing six years ago today. She was a professor of nursing at Bristol Community College for more than 30 years uh, and it was actually named a professor emeritus a few months before she died. And I would say that she and my dad, who is also a teacher, certainly have influenced my own decision um, to work in the education field and my devotion to education, the opportunities that come with it. So if you haven't thanked your teachers lately, now would be a good time, especially since you're going to be asking them to write your recommendation letters either this year or in the future. Um, later in the show, we're going to be answering your questions, and we're also going to take a look at the fast applications that some colleges are sending to students, and you may be wondering, should I do those? Should I not do those? And we're going to try and answer those questions for you. But right now, we're going to look at last year's early decision decision trends. Uh, I think many of you have some final decisions to make pretty much now about whether or not ED is the right choice for you. And uh, we thought it would be helpful for you to um, better understand some of the statistical information behind the scenes. Uh, So joining me to discuss this is former Tufts admissions officer and my colleague, Karen Lyons. Hi, Karen. Hi, Beth. How are you? I'm good, thanks. So, ED, trends, um, it's certainly something that we talk a lot about internally, and actually the idea for this segment came from a presentation that you did at a big team meeting that we had earlier this year, Uh, and I was watching it thinking, we need to share this with our listeners, so I'm super excited to have you on the show today. Why don't we jump right in and start with... um, Uh, Well, let me start with something very basic in case our listeners are not sure about what we're even talking about. Early decision is a binding program. When you apply to a college via early decision, you are committing to attend. So if they admit you, you agree to withdraw all of your other applications and deposit at that school. So with that out of the way, what types of colleges, Karen, are using early decision? Yeah, thanks, Beth. For the most part, it's really only private colleges that are using early decision. Um, And it tends to also be smaller schools. Of those that use early decision, 25% have less than 3,000 students and 20% have less than 10,000. So it's really, you know, some smaller private schools. And that's also pretty selective schools. Of those that use um, early decision, half have an acceptance rate of 50% or or lower. So we're really examining small, private, and selective schools. Right. And just for point of reference, both Karen and I worked at schools that used early decision. um, And at Penn, we used it pretty extensively. Uh, And at Tufts, I think you guys did as well. Um, But let's, let's talk about why would anyone do early decision, right? Be, and there is, you know, sort of why would you bind yourself to one school this early in the process? 
Um, so can you talk a yeah. little bit about that? Yeah. Well, you know, there is a timing advantage. You know, if you can look out there and say, this is my dream school and I can apply to one college and find out in the middle of December that I got in and relax and enjoy senior year, you know, that's wonderful. But there's also, you know, a strategic decision going into early decision in that it can be an advantage in the admissions process. And that advantage is true pretty much at most schools. Um, some, that advantage of applying early decision is quite large and it's huge. Overall, nationwide, it's only, you know, a little over 11% advantage by applying early decision. Um, but that kind of begs the question of, like, how do you figure that out? How do you determine mm-hmm. if the school that you're really excited about, whether you should, you know, apply there or not? Um, and the two things you really want to look at is to compare the acceptance rate for early decision and the acceptance rate in regular decision. So you can see to, you know, what the advantage might be. But also you really want to look at what percentage of that first-year class is getting filled by those students who got an early decision, meaning if you wait to regular decision, how many spots are already gone before you even submit your application? And a great way to capture all of this data is to look at what they call the common data set. And most every college has this someplace on the university website typically not on the admissions page, but rather on a web page for Office of Institutional Research or University Enrollment. And you can just do a little internet search for common data set and your college name that you're interested in. And then once you're there, it's they have all of the past years. Um, most likely you're going to go to the most recent year. So it would be at this point, 27, 2018. And then you click on it and you have to scroll a bunch of pretty interesting information if you're curious to learn more about that college, but in Section C, you'll find first-time, first-year freshman admissions information, and this is where you're going to get out your calculator and dive in and look at some interesting data. Um, When they're listing the information in the common data set, for some reason, they break it down by how many men applied and how many women applied, how many men were admitted, women were admitted, so you have to do some calculations. And this is where you're going to um, find out, calculate the number of total applicants, and then the total number of students were admitted. And you divide the number that were admitted by those that were applied, and you're going to get the overall acceptance rate. So that's how many, you know, for the overall applicant pool. Um, in the same section, you also want to calculate the number of enrolled students so you know how big the freshman class is. And that will come in handy in a moment. <laughs> um, and then in the common data set, you scroll down till you find the early decision stats. Um, and it's just the number of students that were admitted. Um, and you will divide that by the number of students applied and get the early decision acceptance rate. So now you can compare the overall acceptance rate to that early decision acceptance rate to see what kind of advantage ED would give you. And then you will take that um, early decision uh, enrolled student numbers and divide that by the first-year class to see the percentage that got filled. And I would say, you know, many colleges, you know, for when I was there would fill probably, 
you know, maybe 40%. I think some years it's gone closer to 45 and 50 and some years were fewer. But many colleges, if they're filling 20 to 35% of the first year class with early decision, eh, pretty typical enrollment management, early decision will give you a little bit of an edge. But when you see it getting close to 50% or more, that's your kind of sign that, well, ED is going to be a more significant advantage there. Right. And just for context with that, I mean, when I was at Penn, we were filling about half of the class in early decision, and now they've gone past that. So it's not more, it's not much more than half the class, but it is more than half the class. In 2017, they filled 55% of the class in early. So, um, you know, I think there are a lot of reasons for that, but the fact of the matter remains that there is less than 50% of the slots are still available when you apply in regular decision at Penn right now. Yep. And, you and, know, looking at some recent years, schools like, you know, Claremont McKenna, Carleton, Colorado College, they were filling up to 64% of the class. That meant if you waited and applied regular decision, which is when more applicants are definitely applying, there's only 36% of spots left. Um, right. So, you know, when considering, you know, that could be something one of many factors to help a family determine, you know, is early decision potentially, you know, the right choice? How big of an admissions advantage may it give a student? Well, and just for the two of those examples that you just gave where they're filling 64% and early, I mean, the admit rates, Colorado College and early, it was 33% in regular, it was 5%. And I mean, yeah. that was just shocking to me. I and mean, those are you know, Stanford level numbers, <laughs> that is, yeah. Um, yeah, Colorado College is a great school. But when I think of it in terms of selectivity, I certainly I think of it as a selective institution, but not remotely at that level. And yet, if you are waiting and applying in the regular decision round, that's what you're looking at. And, uh, and that is, I'm not gonna lie, that's a little terrifying, <laughs> truthfully. Yeah. So yeah. And then sometimes you'll you'll look at the data and say like, oh, like a school like Swanee, you know, they, you know, oh, they only enrolled 28% of their class with early decision. Like, okay, that's not bad. But then, you know, you look at the admit rate of 76% got in an early um, and then the regular decision acceptance rate was 20%. You know, that's yes. a big, you know, big difference. Um, so both pieces of data will really, I think, help inform a student you know, assuming that the school is their, you know, top choice and they're ready to make that binding commitment, you know, how much of an admissions advantage might be, you know, doing that early decision application. Right, right. And, you know, one of the things we are seeing is that schools that traditionally have overall acceptance rate in the single digits, having double digit acceptance rates in the early round. So that's something else that's sort of interesting um, that you see in some of the data. I have a quick question for you, though. Are you going to find the common data set on every single school's uh, website? Is that sort of a requirement or are there places where it might not exist? There are some schools where they don't partake. Um, I'd say the majority of schools do um, create and share their data for the common data set, but I don't think it's a requirement for every school. Um, mm -hmm. I also found while doing some research that some schools leave sections blank. Mm -hmm. So I was actually trying to find stuff for Tufts in the recent, and there was no stats on early decision for the last, you know, two or three years, but it was available for later, you know, earlier years. So I don't know that it's a requirement, nor do three schools fill out 
every piece of data in it. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I do think at some schools they really want to, um, I don't think it's that they're, I don't want to portray it as that they're trying to hide data. I think that they are sharing what they think is valuable. I think they don't want people applying in early decision if they're not really committed to attending. They don't want people trying to get out of the commitment that they've made. And I do think you run the risk if you are strictly looking at this from a statistical point of view, which quite honestly, you can't, you have to think about it, but it can't be the only reason that you apply early decision somewhere. And so I suspect that part of that uh, unwillingness to disclose is that. And the other part might be they don't really want people to know how much of their class they're filling in early. So there's that too. Um, definitely, definitely. What what kind I, of... I think... Yeah, no, keep going. I was just going to say, I think part of it is, you know, schools don't want families to feel so much pressure that they like, oh, well, I have to apply ED somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think they're trying to kind of calm it but the reality is, you know, the trends we're seeing are are kind of frightening in terms of how much early decision activity is really happening for those schools that do early decision. Yeah. I mean, if I have a student for whom Colorado College is a top choice, I don't see how I can't be pushing or suggesting at least that they consider early decision when you look at the numbers. I am Complete, yeah. I'm in complete agreement. I, I don't love it when kids are like, well, we, I need to decide where I'm going to go early. Because if you don't really have a favorite, it's a terrible thing to commit. But at the same time, if I put my other hat on, which is what's going to give you the best option to get into a school that you really like, you can't deny that early is one of those things or can be one of those things. Um, any yeah. predictions that you have for, for what we might see as, as this kind of, you know, as we continue um, in 2018, yeah. 2019 and in the future? Yeah. And so, you know, there's, there's always kind of talk about, oh, the number of students graduating is plateaued. And although that is true, what we're seeing is there are more first-year students submitting applications. The number of applications has increased 7% over the last year. I think that that will continue. Students are applying to more and more schools. I also think students are going to feel a lot more pressure to apply ED. Um, And if they don't get in, if they apply ED and they miss, I think because of the difference in selectivity, if you wait to regular decision, I think their regular decision list of schools is going to have to be, you know, a grouping of much less selective schools because of how competitive um, the regular decision process is at so many schools now. Right. Um, so I think kids will also end up having, you know, longer list of schools to apply, which then gets back to the increased number of applications. So mm-hmm. um, it'll be you know, really interesting to see where it all goes. Um, but that's my prediction, more applications and, um, you know, schools continuing to, you know, fill more of that class with their early decision because it, that gives them great yield. They know everyone that they're admitting in early decision comes and is part of their school community um, and it helps their overall acceptance rate. Yeah, and I think um, I think a, a really good thing that you mentioned um, is if you apply ED and you miss. And so I would again caution students that 
while it's great to take a shot at your dream school in early decision, if you're in a position to apply early decision, and by the way, if finances are a concern, early decision is not generally the best choice because you lose your ability to compare packages. And at some schools, your package may not be quite as good. Um, although if you're applying to need blind institutions, it should be pretty, um, it should be exactly the same that you would get in regular decision. That was definitely the case at Penn. But you know, taking a shot at that dream school that you really have no shot at just because the acceptance rate is higher is not strategically your best move. If you also have a school where you have a better shot that also has ED um, because you're giving up one chance um, that might be a better chance for the other. So you really have to be thoughtful about it. Um, Anyway, Karen, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing all this information. And uh, hopefully our listeners found it just as valuable um, as I did. Well, thanks so much. All right. We are going to go to a quick break. But when we come back, we are answering your questions. So don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. 
Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. I am very excited to welcome my colleague and former financial aid officer at Tufts. We have two Tufts, former Tufts people in a row here today, Shannon Vasconcelos. Hi, Shannon. Hi, Beth. Hi. All right. So unlike typical shows where you and I have two segments for Q&A, we're only doing one today. So we're going to mostly focus on finance with maybe an admissions question thrown in. So let me jump right in. We have a question from Jason who asks, um, I'd like to reduce my taxable income so that I'm more eligible for financial aid. My financial advisor suggested increasing my contributions to pre-tax retirement savings. Is this a good strategy? Unfortunately, no. Um, it, it sounds like a really good idea. It sounds like it would work, but unfortunately, it doesn't. So, and I hear this kind of rumor all the time that people think they've figured out a way to work the system and they think they should contribute more to their 401k in the years that the colleges are going to look at on a financial aid application um, because that will reduce their adjusted gross income and theoretically make them look poorer on a financial aid application. Um, But unfortunately, it does not work um, because though the adjusted gross income is is generally the, the biggest, the main number that the financial aid offices are looking at, they do also ask on the FAFSA about a number of forms of untaxed income that you might have had. And the most common one is, in fact, your 401k contributions. Um, So even though, you know, let's say if you made $50,000 a year, but you contributed $10,000 to your 401k, you know, your adjusted gross income shows up as $40,000. But then they ask you on the FAFSA, in addition to that $40,000 adjusted gross income, they say report the amount you contributed to your 401k here. And that's where you would report the 10,000 and the financial aid offices, just add them together and look at your total income. So even if you, um, if you contribute some of your income to a retirement account, it is still considered part of your income as far as the financial aid applications go. So unfortunately, that strategy does not work for most people. You know, if you earn a salary, really your income just is what it is. And there's not much you can do to reduce that income. I would say that the biggest tips I would have regarding income is to make sure that you don't kind of artificially inflate your income in a year that the college is going to look at by doing things like, um, you know, cashing in a bunch of stock. So you, um, you realize this big capital gain in a year that the college is going to look at or taking a withdrawal from like an IRA that also increases your income. Um, so those are things you certainly want to avoid doing in, in a year that the college is going to look at on the financial aid application. Um, but beyond that, unfortunately, there, there's not a real good way to hide your income um, because the colleges do ask for your total income, including those 401k contributions. Right. What's interesting to me about that is, on the one hand, the FAFSA nor the CSS profile requires you to dip into your retirement savings in order to pay for college. But, right, they are still sort of considering what you're trying to put away in this situation. 
You're right, yeah, because the um, it, is, it is a little bit tricky and it gets confusing. The, the two kind of main forms of money that the financial aid applications are asking about are your income and your assets. And you're totally right that your retirement accounts are invisible on the asset side of the equation. Um, so you don't have to report anywhere you know, the full amount that's in your 401k, but you do still have to report the portion of your income that you contributed in that one year that the college is looking at. So it is hidden on the asset side, not hidden on the income side. You're right about that. It gets confusing. Got it. Got it. All right. Let's get to another finance question. This one comes from Donald, who says, my oldest child is in medical school. Can I include him in the household size and number in college when I'm filling out the FAFSA for my youngest? Yes, you can. And that's, that's a great question. It comes up for a lot of people when they have kids who are in undergrad and some kids in graduate school. Um, so yes, or at least you may be able to include that, that student in medical school when you're filling out the FAFSA for your younger child. Uh, and the rules having to do with, you know, who you can claim in your household on the FAFSA, you can claim any children for whom you're providing at least half of their support. So for that child in medical school, if you are truly still supporting them, you know, you're paying the tuition bill, you're helping to pay their rent, um, then yes, you can legitimately claim that, claim that child as a household member when you're filling out the FAFSA for your younger child and also claim them as a college student. And that makes a huge difference to the financial aid um, calculations, the fact that you will have two kids in college in the, the next year um, if, if you can count that child in medical school. And if you are providing at least half of their support, you can, in fact, include them. If you are not providing half of their support, if they're maybe, you know, borrowing student loans entirely themselves to pay for their medical school, and maybe they're working a part-time job to pay their rent, and you're really not supporting them anymore, then you, in that circumstance, you should not be claiming them at all. Uh, on your younger child's FAFSA, then they are not in your household. You can't count them in your household or as a college student on your younger child's FAFSA. But if you are still supporting them, then yes, you can claim them. And that, that will certainly help you quite a bit in the financial aid calculations. Awesome. Shannon, I want to ask you one more question before we go to an admissions question. And this one comes from Elliot. Um, Part of my pay package in 2017 was some deferred compensation. Do I have to report that on the FAFSA? Yeah, so Elliot, that one's a little bit tricky um, because it does depend on uh, sort of a lot of things fall into that category of deferred compensation. I would say the general rule is you do not have to report um, deferred compensation on your uh, FAFSA. Um, It generally shows up kind of as income in the year that you actually receive it. Um, so that, that's the general rule. There are a couple forms of deferred compensation that we actually just talked about, like your, your 401k contributions. Technically, that, that is deferred compensation because you're not, you, know, you don't actually receive the money until well into the future. Um, but they do ask for that on the FAFSA. So that's one form of deferred compensation you do have to report. Um, I would just say read the FAFSA questions carefully. Um, There's a particular question in the untaxed income section of the FAFSA that actually tells you, look at your W-2 box 12. And if you have any of these codes, we need you to report that money. 
If you have money in box 12 that is not under one of those codes, then you do not have to report it. So kind of general rule is you don't report it until you actually receive the funding unless it is specifically asked for on the FAFSA. And there are a few forms of deferred compensation that are asked for, but most of them uh, are not. Right. And it's probably good to point out that this is a federal document and you need to answer it truthfully or there can be consequences, right? There's, you know, you don't, yeah. if you have it, you got to put that number down. <laughs> you got you got to report it. Yeah. If you were to ever get caught lying on, on your FAFSA, there can be pretty extreme consequences. You know, on the, the far end of things, you, you can actually go to jail for it. That usually doesn't happen, but I have seen um, students get expelled from school uh, after being caught lying on a financial aid application. So you, you don't want to mess mess around with that. You want you want to be honest for sure. Yes. Okay. All right. Why don't we pop over and do one admissions question if you've got a good one for me? Yeah, I think I do. So this question is: How do I know if I should take? the SAT again, if it is in the range for the schools that I'm considering, should I test again or not? Uh, Question, really good question. And I'm going to answer it the way that I frequently answer questions related to admissions. And that is, it depends. (laughs) So um, it means it's one thing to be in range for a school that is admitting more than 50% of their applicant pool. And it is quite another to be in range for a school that is admitting less than 50% of their applicant pool. So if you are, um, if you're in the middle 50%, and I'm assuming that's what you mean by being in range, uh, so your scores are falling in that that range that the middle 50% of their accepted students are have those scores, then you're probably good and you don't need to worry about taking these tests again. But if you are applying to a more selective school and the more selective you get, um, the more important this piece is, uh, then being simply in the middle of that middle 50% may not be good enough. So an example, an extreme example would be the Ivies or the the most selective schools that go along with the Ivies like Stanford and MIT and Caltech and places like that. Simply being in the middle 50% there is just, there's so many students in that middle 50%. Being above the middle right. 50% will certainly be important. It's not going to be the thing that gets you in, but it certainly will be the thing that makes you much more competitive. And so what I would suggest is that Um, If the schools that you are looking at are of the more selective variety, then being above that middle 50% is what I would be shooting for rather than being in that middle 50%. So if you are not in the middle, if you're just in the middle 50%, then you probably should test again. If you are not, uh, if you're well above it, then you may just be fine. And um, the other, the last thing I would say is that you're not going to, you don't want to be taking these tests too many times, you know, three or four times, probably actually two or three times, I rarely have a student take a test four times, uh, is probably fine. And if you're not doing any prep or you've done plenty of prep and this is really what you're getting, then at that point, you kind of have to move on. It's what you have and you need to focus on the other elements of the application uh, that are and making those as good as they can be, right? So so there you go. Standard, it depends. 
Of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> if I had exactly. a dime for every time we said that on the show, I would be a rich woman. <laughs> well, exactly. And if we all had a dime for every time we said that in general in the course of the day of doing yeah. our jobs, we would be rich. Of course, I would like to point out that the fact that the answer is so frequently, it depends, is why we all have these jobs, because it isn't right. ever or rarely anyway, is it clear cut. Um, exactly. All right. I've got a question for you, and this one comes from Lewis. Uh, we declined the student loan that was offered to my student last spring, but now that the school year has started, we've decided we could really use that money. Can we still apply? Yes, you sure can. You can actually borrow student loans um, throughout the course of the academic year. You actually have up until June 30th to borrow a loan still for this you know, 18, 19 school year. So you can even decide, you know, in June that, that, that you want to take that loan after all that you declined, you know, a year ago. So yeah, you can absolutely still borrow the loan. It's okay that you declined it initially that um, the government student loan money doesn't really run out. You can always get that. So even if you decline it initially, um, you can always ask for it back later. And that's you know, different than, you know, grant money from the university. You know, I, I don't know why you would ever decline grant money, but once you, no. if you did decline it, it would be gone. It would be given to somebody else. But the loan money really never runs out. So you can always ask for it um, later. And I would say the only um, thing to think about is um, by kind of default, if you ask for a loan right now, it would be split in half between the two semesters. So you would get half of the money immediately and half would be sent for this spring semester. So you want to think about, do you, do you in fact need some money now? Um, you know, I presumably at this point, your fall semester bill has been paid. Um, are you needing money for living expenses and, and things like that? If so, then the kind of default option will work for you to get half the money now. If your bill has been paid, what will happen is the, um, the, it will create a credit on your account and the schools will normally can issue the student a refund check for that credit and then they could take the money and you know pay their rent and stuff with that. Um, or do you not need any money now because your fall semester bill has been paid? What you're thinking about is you need some money to pay the spring semester bill. Um, if that's the case, um, then you probably don't want the loan split in half because there's no use getting money now and it's just accruing interest when you don't need it. Um, you would rather wait to receive the money for the spring semester bill when that's due in like December or January. Um, so if you do want the loan just for the spring, you just want to make sure you specify that to the financial aid office. So you want your child to stop by the financial aid office or shoot them an email and say, hey, I declined this loan, but I realize now that I do need it for the spring semester. Could you process this spring only loan for me? Uh, and that way they'll know to just have them send the whole thing in the spring rather than the default option, which is to split it in half. But yeah, you can absolutely still get money now. You can get it throughout the course of the school year if you realize you need it. Awesome. Shannon, thank you so much for joining us today. As always, I learned a lot and hopefully our listeners did as well. Oh, you're so welcome, Beth. Take care. All right. Uh, we are going to be back in just a minute, and we're going to be talking about those fast applications and priority applications. Uh, if you're wondering whether or not it's worth it to fill that out, well, hopefully we'll be able to let you know in our next segment.
stimulating talk. It gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody. I am very excited to welcome my colleague, who also happens to be a former Brandeis admissions officer, to the show today because she's a great guest, but also it is her birthday. So if the collective listenership could just sort of say, hey, happy birthday, Julia. Uh, right now, that Julia, for the rest of the month of October and into November, you'll be sort of having this weird sensation of, wow, it feels just like my birthday still today. So happy birthday, hey. Julia Jones. <laughs> well, thank you. And yeah, let's extend it. I have no problem with that. Um, and I can exactly. think of no better way to spend it than to be here. So uh, um, that's great. 
Well, you are kind because I could probably think of a few ways that you might more enjoy it, but we are oh, Okay, but I'm not being facetious that I do love being here, so. Okay, well, wonderful. So what what you and I are talking about today is some is a kind of a phenomenon that we see at this time of year, and that is we're working with students, they're working on their common applications, sometimes their coalition applications, and then suddenly we get the email, hey, I just got this great FAST app from... Tulane or from yeah. another school. And yeah. Yeah. I think I should fill this one out, even though we have just put all this effort and time into perfecting this one application or even better, right? We haven't finished right. my main essay and this one doesn't require an essay. So I'm just going to use this one. And I thought it would be good to kind of talk through this because actually it's a conversation behind the scenes here as well on does, should I have my student do this application? Does it really make sense? That kind of thing. So yeah. Let's start yeah. with the basics. What is a FAST or a priority application? Sure. Well, I think kind of as you described it, sometimes it is one of those random emails or, or notifications that you get. Um, sometimes it might be from a school that you um, are al- it's already on your application list, or sometimes it's a school that maybe you know you had had an interest in, or maybe sometimes it can be a school that you really hadn't even considered. Um, but uh, you know, and all of a sudden they're sending you some notification saying, "Hey, you know, we have an application for you to fill out, um, or to you know that you can apply." Um, and they're you know, it's it's a way to get you to apply um, to make it super easy and super fast. Um, they they some you know they all have different um, elements to it. A lot of times, uh, most in most cases, they're waiving the application fee, so you don't have to pay the application fee. Um, sometimes, as you say, they're waiving the essay. Um, you know, I have been, I have seen some of them where they've actually pre-filled out a lot of the information. So, you know, maybe all you need to do is is uh, put in, you know, the other some more relevant information, send your transcript, um, and then a lot of them also do, do promise a quick turnaround. So instead of waiting until December or even um, March or April to get a decision from them. You know, some of them will promise a decision within a couple of weeks, even. So, right. Um, so there are a lot of good things that you know that there and a lot of um, incentives that they're giving you to you know to fill out and and get an application in. So then I think yeah. that begs the question: um, you know, why why do colleges yeah. use these applications? They seem to be very yeah. beneficial on some level, but is that the reason that they're using them? Sure. And yeah, and, and obviously, you know, there are, um, uh, you know, a lot of, of kind of ulterior motives <laughs> for colleges. Yes. I and mean, they are, you know, they, they are legit. But I think that colleges, obviously, their goal when they're looking at um, uh, the the process, I mean, they want, um, they want to have as many applicants as they can. Um, you know, it helps their numbers. For colleges, they're looking at, okay, how, how can we have as low an acceptance rate as possible? And sometimes the way to do that is to have more applicants to um, to review. So I also do think that for many of them, it's, you know, they're, they're looking at, okay, you know, there are students perhaps within a geographic um, area that they're, they want to increase their, their, their uh, applicants or their, their numbers, um, or students that have a certain SAT range that, um, that they want to, to target. So um, I, either way, it's, it is a marketing tool for them, for sure. Um, it's a way for, for them to really, you know, to get students who maybe hadn't, 
uh, can really thought seriously about them, or maybe that are, but really to and get get them over the finish line and get them mm-hmm. to to apply and and add to their numbers. So, um, so so that's really why I think some schools will will do that, and it's in part to raise their applicant pool, also to maybe target certain you know certain populations that they really are looking for as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So then, of course, the next question is now we understand why colleges are doing that. Um, yeah. But does it make sense for the student to use it? And, you know, why or why not? Right. So when I had a student recently, um, I will share this story. I had a student I'm working with um, who was applying to Tulane and um, we had worked on the common application. It was complete. And then I got an email from her um, about five days later saying, hey, I got the fast application for Tulane. And so I went ahead and filled that out. And can you review that? And, you know, sort of part of me thought, well, we already reviewed the Common App. This is done. Why are you redoing it? And my initial gut reaction was that I did not think it was a good idea or worth it. Also, because when when colleges accept the common application, they agree that they will not value any application more than another. In other words, they can't value their own personal application more than they value the common application. And I've absolutely seen that to be true, that there is no extra advantage conferred by applying using the school's application versus using the coalition or the common app. Um, However, the student came back with a really good reason. And that was because she planned to then apply to some, uh, some scholarships that were available at Tulane. And all of those applications were accessed through the portal, which when she applied through the Tulane application, she was already establishing the portal. So in essence, her point was, Mm -hmm. I think this is going to make it easier. And I think the jury's still out on whether or not it is going to make it easier. But at least, you know, I felt better about the fact that there was actually a purpose there rather than just kind of a jumping to, oh, this is they're going to want this more, which I don't actually think is the case. So so let me throw that to you. What are some situations where you think it makes sense for a student to use it and when you might not want to use it? Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think you raised some, some good points there. I think that it's, you know, it's true. I mean, I don't think colleges are going to care whether you apply to them via the fast app or the common app. Um, I mean, the key is they want your application. And so, um, it doesn't, it's not an, an indication that they are, they, they're going to accept you. I think some students yes. you know, maybe, um, incorrectly think, oh, well, this must mean, you know, I'm, I'm in it. It probably means you're in range, you know, with, with information that they may already have, which is likely testing. Um, but that's as we know, that's never a guarantee of anything. So, right. um, but they're not sending these to students who who maybe they know are, are going to be are you know below their their range. So. Um, but I think, you know, and my advice to students who've done this is that, you know, if it's a school that you are going to apply to, um, in the case of your student, she was already, you know, on board for Tulane, um, or if it, you know, if it's a school that, that you have interest in, maybe it gets you to think about a school that you really hadn't considered yet. Um, but, and it looks like it's a fit or it looks like it might be, um, you know, an option, then, then it may, it may make sense, um, to do it. I think that it's, uh, if for some students, it, it can get, get the process going for them. It can jumpstart it. Um, there is something really appealing about having a decision 
um, from a college early in the fall, um, you mm-hmm. know, an acceptance, even if it's not your top choice to, uh, you know, I have a, we, a colleague who um, had said that, you know, Baylor University in Texas, uh, you know, accepted a student of his, a couple, uh, I think, about a few weeks ago. So, you know, imagine that, to have an, an acceptance in September um, for colleges. So I think, so there can be some, some benefit there. Um, and, uh, you know, and, but I do think that for some students, too, the, the lure of not having to write an essay um, to just put things in, I mean, that can sound appealing, but remember there is mm-hmm. a purpose for the essay, and sometimes that yes. can be a very important part of an application, a way for a student to tell their story. So, you know, if you're, if you're applying without that, um, that actually may put you at a disadvantage if, if you feel like, okay, this, I, I want more of this information to be, to be a part of it. So, um, so, so I think that, you know, you have to kind of take that into, into consideration as well. Yeah, I, I could not agree more. I think there are times where I feel like the student's application will not be as strong if they're not writing an essay. And for that reason, sometimes these faster priority applications that don't include an essay, uh, the mm-hmm. very thing that makes them appealing is the very thing that makes them the wrong choice sometimes. Um, right, I wanted, right. I wanted yeah. to hit... Yeah. Uh, well, I wanted to hit really quickly on something that you mentioned, which is they're not going to send it to you if they if you're not in range, which, of course, mm-hmm. begs the question, how do they know if you are in range? So right. what you know, what can you tell us about how colleges decide who to include from that perspective? Right. Well, and I think it, it's it's the same force that that is is how you get mail from colleges. Mm-hmm. You know, even you know once you've taken the PSATs for the first time, or uh, you know, all of a sudden you start getting you know mail from from colleges. Um, you know, and 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 I think that that continues. Um, so it's you know they're they're getting they're getting data from from the College Board and from the ACT, and they have you know so they they may not have your exact information, but they definitely you know are are purchasing information about. Um, about students, you know, who, who score within a certain range. So, mm-hmm. so I think that's that's essentially how what they do. I mean, sometimes again, if they if you are already on a school's mailing list, if you've gone to visit a college, if you um, have given them some information um, to, to get in their inquiry pool, then you know they may again, if they're looking for students from um, you know from a particular region, then that may that may also help them to you know that's part of why they may be sending it. So it may be sometimes targeted by by that as well. Right, exactly. So, uh, and I, I think that is an important point because they don't know what you've done in the classroom, right? They don't know what classes that you have taken. They don't know what you've chosen to do outside of the classroom. They may know what you've indicated an interest in, but um, mm-hmm. they don't know much. And so I, I would caution, as I know you were, Julia, um, also cautioning yeah. that receiving this application they're sending it to you on some fairly minimal information and there really are no guarantees. Uh, and you know, you, you may ultimately not be particularly competitive at all at that school. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think that's really important for people to keep in mind. Right. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And and so, you know, I think it's it's as with everything, it's it depends a lot on, you know, where the school is on your list. Um I think for some students it can be a great option, you know, if it's if it's a school where you're either, you know, at or certainly above their range, um you know, if if it feels like it's a, you know, a safety school for you, um and one that would would be an interesting option for you. Um you know, I don't then that might be a reason to send to to 
fill it out and to do the FAST app because, you know, that's a school that likely you may not really need the essay to, you know, to, to really put you over the, the, um, that accept, uh, accept line. So, mm-hmm. Um, yep. Well, but but if it's a school that you know, um, when you if you're looking at doing your research on the you know where you are in their applicant pool range, you know if if it's a school that's more of a reach, it may be one to think about. Well, you know, again, would this school benefit from having, you know, my re- teacher recommendations, my essay, my you know all of the things that they're waiving, but that you can uh, that would still really be a, an important part of the application. Um, a lot of schools that have these apps, you know, they will still waive the application fee um, on the common app because that's a part that's a feature too is that they're waiving the application fee and that's you know that's something again if, if you know if they're if they're you're, you're able to save save a little bit of money by applying to a school without having to pay the 50 or 60 dollar or more application fee then great you know mm-hmm. um, and, and a lot of schools will let you still apply using the common app and waive the fee even if you don't um, don't use the fast app. Right. Exactly. And I, I think a point that I keep I keep hearing you make over and over, which is if it makes sense for you, if it looks appealing to you, I think probably yeah. collectively our least favorite thing is when a student gets a fast app from a school that they have never talked about, never considered, aren't interested in key. Yeah. You know, they look it up and they are still not interested and they do the application anyway. There is right. literally no purpose to that. You are potentially taking a spot away from another student, right? So let's look at that. There is downside to it. It may not be a downside for you, but it's a downside for someone. If you are never going to this school, please, please be a kind person and do not submit the application. Totally agree. Totally. Agree. You yes. know, again, it's, it's, I mean, it's nice to sort of have another acceptance and, you know, but I, I, I caution students in any way, you know, whether it's a fast stab or not, you know, you, we're not about, it's not about collecting acceptance letters at this mm-hmm. point. It's really about finding those schools that, that are going to, that are going to be good fits for you. And, and so, and again, sometimes you can find, you can learn about a school that, um, that maybe you hadn't considered. So I do think there's some benefit to them, but, but yeah, I think you have to, you can't just take it and say, okay, well, they're, they're, you know, obviously, you know, it's it's easy as clicking a button to apply to this school. So why not? Mm-hmm. Um, because it may not be a, a school that you know it, it, it's it's not necessarily going to be um, uh, you know an, an option going forward for all the reasons that uh, um, and and for all the reasons that you mentioned, it doesn't it doesn't make sense if it's not a school that you're interested in. Right. Exactly. And yeah. you can only go to one college. Uh-huh. Exactly. Exactly. Julia. So yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking part of your birthday to spend it with us. I really appreciate it. Well, no problem. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Uh, absolutely. Next week, Sally is hosting. We're going to be talking about how to keep track of your student loans while you're in college, um, to disclose or not to disclose. And we're going to see how much we can cover on that, um, starting with uh, learning differences, but we may tackle some other stuff as well. And in office hours, how do I know when I'm ready to press submit? Uh, we face this every year where we have students who still, well, I could just do one more edit on this and one more review of the application. And sometimes you just have to press send. Um, if you have questions for us, uh, we are doing those listener question segments uh, at least once a month, sometimes more frequently. Send your questions to us at gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Um, there are great free ways to interact with us. You can visit our archives. 
please read our blog. Uh, it's at blog.getintocollege.com. We are on Pinterest. We are on Facebook, probably most importantly. And you can also sign up for free downloads of the show on iTunes. Uh, and don't forget, we're here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Mm -hmm.